But I think that everyone should have the experience of being in the back of the truck with a sick patient because it's one of the scariest places to be or being in the back of the truck with an agitated patient Mm -hmm. because I think that often we're not empathetic enough to how that feels to being basically locked in a tin can a moving one a moving tin can with either someone who's trying to hurt you or trying to die on you anybody who gives you crap for activating when it didn't turn out to be the thing is a jerk and they should be sorry i bet they are (laughs) i bet they're not i bet they're not (laughs) welcome to medic mindset i'm ginger Locke. This is an episode in the Thinking Series, where expert clinicians indulge me while I dig into their brains to explore how they approach the process of patient assessment and differential diagnosis. The Thinking Series exists because we know the most important resource in an ambulance is the brain of the paramedic. In each episode, we pick off one chief complaint at a time, and in this episode, headache is our topic. In other episodes, we've talked about other chief complaints, like chest pain and syncope and agitation. The conversations yield details on assessment findings and conditions. But we also get a peek at something else. We get to the heart of the guiding principles in clinical reasoning and decision-making. I want to thank Kyle Strickland, a former student who recommended this guest, Dr. Karen Bowers. She's an emergency medicine physician And by the time you finish this episode, you will understand why Kyle said she is one of us. So I took kind of a circuitous route to medical school, like a second career person, originally had a bachelor's and a master's in English, Um, decided to get serious about life and go back and did a master's in microbiology and as well as my pre-med work. And then I went to medical school at Virginia Tech did residency in Atlanta at Emory, working primarily at Grady. And now I'm doing an EMS fellowship at Indiana University in Indianapolis. And I think I read in your bio that you went to University of Georgia. I sure did. Go dogs. How about that? I'm a bulldog. I gave them a lot of money for several degrees (laughs) and spent a lot of time there. (laughs) It's a fun town. It's a, you know, they say it's the best five or six years of your life. (laughs) We hung out here for a while talking about our days at the University of Georgia. And then I told her that Kyle Strickland sent me her way. Kyle is one of the smartest paramedics, best paramedics I've ever worked with. One of the smartest people that I know Mm -hmm. and is like a shining example of what you want the paramedics in your service to be. What about him? What's the what's the deal there? So I love working with EMS because I think in general pre Hospital providers are incredibly curious, incredibly intelligent, incredibly motivated to learn more and do better. And I think that they get left out by the continuing medical education and by the medical system as learners. Kyle's like the perfect example of that. So Kyle is a very good friend of mine. My old roommate was his paramedic partner at Grady EMS. And I used to regularly come home. And the two of them would have my textbook spread out on my coffee table and look up and say, oh, good, we're glad you're home. We have questions, (laughs) right? Like always pushing, always learning. Sometimes Kyle would ask me questions that I had no idea what the answer was. He's smart and he's fun. He's absolutely hilarious, very laid back and easy to be around. But when it's time to do the job, he turns on, he does it right. Mm -hmm. 
We loved having him in the program. He really stood out. I once called him in the library reading academic journals. Surprises me not at all. Yeah. He sent a message about you, too, because I asked him. (laughs) Because he's kind of pointing me in your direction. And I thought, okay, great. Like, let's do this. Um, Why, you know, why are you recommending? Why this nerdy doctor? (laughs) Why this jerk? And he said, let me find, I don't want to make sure I get it right. What comes to mind when I think of Karen, and I think it's cool that he called you Karen. That is my name. I am only Dr. Bowers if I'm mad at you or you're my patient. <laughs> Fair enough. He said, when I think of Karen, it's that she's one of us. When Karen is around, there are no titles and no ego, just a team taking care of people. And he said, after a rough shift, when you need some good laughs, she's always down to hang out at the Waffle House. And that really, like... Oh, I love the Waffle well, Kyle was my Atlanta Waffle House buddy. Kyle was always down for some good greasy food. Yeah. I am... That makes me happy. I really do think that we're a team. I have seen firsthand the effects that a good medic can have on patient care. And they 100% affect that patient's clinical course and outcome. So the thinking series that I've invited you to be a part of is basically biting off one chief complaint at a time, talking to great minds, great clinicians to give medics kind of some tips about how you think about different chief complaints. And the one we've picked is headache. When you hear that a patient has a headache, what conditions are you most concerned about? In emergency medicine, I think of it as functioning kind of in an upside down pyramid. We worry about the scariest and most devastating things first, and then work our way down to everything else. Whereas, you know, sometimes I think in outpatient medicine, you kind of go for the low-hanging fruit. So, you know, when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras kind of mindset. But my job is to make sure that you're going to stay alive. And then my job is to decide whether or not you can go home. While most headaches are benign, until proven otherwise, everything in the emergency department is devastating. Probably the most common devastating condition that comes with a chief complaint of headache would be a stroke. We think of them probably most typically with hemorrhagic strokes, right, head bleeds. And then if it's not a head bleed, what else is it? Other things you think about would be an ischemic stroke, although, you know, maybe not quite as commonly associated mentally um, in your decision-making with headache. Um, Meningitis is another one that needs quick and immediate intervention, Um, hypertensive emergency often comes with the chief complaint of headache. Uh, Migraines are probably the most common headache that we see in the ED that can really look scary, even though they're benign. And then otherwise, you think about things like structural abnormalities, so vascular versus mass lesions, in particular, intracranial hypertension. It's a pretty broad and diverse differential when you just kind of go in with a chief complaint of headache. You kind of alluded to <clears throat> which conditions are common but not worrisome with migraine being one. Mm-hmm. I guess sometimes people come to the, the ER with because it's a sinus headache or a tension headache. Man, people come to the ER for all sorts of stuff. <laughs> Nobody knows that better, I think, than EMS because they pick them up for it too. I mean, we see people with sinus headaches. We see people with tension headaches. We see people with migraines and other more, I guess, pathologic to use, maybe not the best word, like cluster headaches and all, all, all sorts of other, you know, kind of benign headaches. Traumatic headaches after an MVC are pretty common. You know, anything with a head injury, you know, start worrying about more serious pathology. But yeah, people come to the ER for all sorts of stuff. Yeah, they do. Can you talk about the assessment you would do on a patient with a, a headache? The first thing I want to know about a headache 
is, is it acute or is it chronic? Have you had this headache before or is this brand new today? And while we're talking, you know, you're also doing some assessment. Do they look okay? Are they confused? Are all their limbs moving? You know, do they move their hands as they talk? Just kind of quick and dirty assessments that might change my course, right? If I look at you as I ask you if you've had this headache before and one side of your face is lower than the other, that's going to change the way I approach this. Providing you look okay, is it acute or is it chronic? If you've had this headache before, is it kind of what we call an acute episodic headache? Or is it truly acute? First time, never had it like before. Or it's really bad. It just showed up. I don't have it all the time, but I've had this before. And it feels just like XYZ headache I've had before. Chronic headaches, you look at progressive versus not progressive. Is this the same headache you've had three times a month for the last five years? Or is this headache getting worse? I was reading about this before we were going to meet. All the recommendations said that you should be concerned that it's an emergency if it's kind of a different type of headache or you've never had a headache like this before and the onset is after 50. What's that about? There's not like a thing that develops after 50 that shows up with a headache. But after 50, you know, our bodies start to misbehave a little more than they did. And most people with a history of headaches will have had them before the age of 50. Mm -hmm. So people who are going to have, you know, cluster headaches are kind of a young man's disease. Migraines typically show up a little bit earlier. So in some ways that headache has self-selected itself that's really redundant, <laughs> has self-selected somewhat out of the low-risk headaches. It doesn't mean that it can't be benign because it can, but it puts pathology a little higher on your differential. Obviously, the older you get, the higher your cancer risk is. So structural lesions can give you a headache, pretty common. As you get older, your brain loses volume, right? So it takes up less space in your head, but your head doesn't get any smaller. So the veins that attach your brain to the covering, then they get stretched. It's called the bridging veins. They get stretched a little bit more. This is a very common etiology of head bleeds in older adults. Typically, this is not something we see in the 50s necessarily, unless you are a long-term alcoholic or have some other pretty severe chronic disease that physiologically aged you beyond your years. And the tear in those bridges, that's the classic subdural hematoma? That is a classic subdural hematoma, yep. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, old people that fall and go boom and everything looks fine, um, and they have a little little bleed in there. And, and other vascular um, abnormalities, any sort of like venous malformation, any sort of aneurysm, all of those things are more likely to become problematic with age. So I interrupted you with the question about the 50-year-old, mm -hmm. and you were telling me how your assessments go, your thought process, and you were starting with talking about kind of this view from the door. Um, where do you go after that? So I guess your first assessment is right, sick or not sick. And EMS gets a better view of that even than I do. EMS providers get this unique opportunity. They see them in their home. They see them moving to the cot. They may see them ambulating, right? So sick or not sick? Do you look okay or do you not look okay? Right? And so then that kind of changes the path you go down. If they don't look okay, then you sort of respond to whatever you're seeing. You know, if they generally look all right, then I will go into a history. Tell me about your headache. Tell me about how it started. People talk about like the thunderclap headache. Mm -hmm explain what that means. We see it in textbooks. We say it. What's the nuance of that? What they mean by that is a headache that is bad as it got as soon as it started. So did it start severe? Did it creep up on you? And that's actually how I asked my patients that. I said, you know, was this headache this bad when it started or did it kind of creep up on you? Okay. Right. And so when I document, and I think is in my head, and I'll preface this by saying I'm a documentation nerd and 
you know, I'm much more picky than the normal human being. I will say that it's maximal at onset. Okay. Right? Yeah. Or not maximal at onset. It's a little less colloquial and a little bit more concretely descriptive. And so that's what we mean when we say a thunderclap headache is it started suddenly and severely mm-hmm. and it has persisted at that level. That is much more concerning than a headache that has been creeping on over the last two days and now you just can't stand it anymore. Or you've tried some things at home and it hasn't gone away and now you're here. Right. Which is reasonable. Actually, you know, people get really frustrated. Um, for patients who are in the ER for things that maybe are not life-threatening. That kind of headache, I think, is Mm -hmm. sanity-threatening. And I get it, right? And if you've tried everything you can at home and you need more help, then come see me because I'm pretty good at headache. So that's kind of how you delineate those two types of headaches. When we talk about a headache that's maximal at onset or a thunderclap headache, generally we're thinking a subarachnoid hemorrhage, Mm -hmm. an interparenchymal type bleed. Let's talk about the head trauma. How far will you try to get them to go back in history and time to remem- oh, remember? Man. So that's, that's complicated, right? I legitimately had a patient in residency who came in, basically had a, like a URI with a sinus component. He looked fine. He said, I fell off my bike. I think this was like a Tuesday. He said, I fell off my bike last Wednesday. Like whatever it was, it was six days ago. Bicycle? Bicycle. Yeah, not motorbike or not my bird scooter or whatever it is people fly <laughs> off of these days. Um, but that wasn't what he was complaining of, right? And looked fine. My attending thought he looked fine. We sent him home. Well, he actually went back to jail, which is obviously a huge risk factor for patients. I got a text message from a resident the next day. I wasn't even working. And she said, I have your patient from yesterday and he's back with a huge head bleed. Did it start with, remember that guy? Remember that guy you saw yesterday? But man, is that scary to have seen this guy for very like kind of benign, unconcerning symptoms, discharge him. He actually did not make it. It was a non-survivable bleed. The likelihood that he was assaulted in jail and this was a new bleed is probably pretty good, Mm -hmm. but it makes you a little sick in your stomach to know that he had some head trauma six days ago and like, did I miss it? The real answer is probably not, but the conscience of anybody who cares about their patient says, but what if, and will always say, but what if. And so you're telling me about the history yeah, Any so more history before we move to physical? Social history, um, particularly do they use cocaine? Um, and are they a smoker? Because both of those are risk factors for vascular pathology mm-hmm. um, and make them more likely to have um, an intraparenchymal hemorrhage. Okay. Um, medications, a lot, of, and this is another thing with older folks, right? They're more likely to be on medications that cause headaches, like nitrates. Mm. Did you take nitro today, right? Because yeah. nitro gives everybody a headache. And sometimes they wish they had their chest pain back. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Did you take nitro today? Indomethacin that we use to treat gout is another um, common drug that causes headaches. And fun fact, any sort of erectile dysfunction drug, Viagra, Mm -hmm. um, they're going to give you headaches kind of with the same mechanism that nitro is. Right. Also, something that has kind of popped up recently, the Rhino male enhancement products that are sold over the counter at like truck stops and gas stations have recently been like found. Like Rhino brand? Like Rhino brand. Okay. It's got like a rhinoceros on the, <laughs> and I'm sorry, I'm not trying to defame them. Um, There's like a rhinoceros on the package. <laughs> they have actually recently been found to contain small amounts of sildenafil. Mm-hmm. Sial- is Cialis? Is it Cialis. Yeah. Yeah. And so they also may cause headache. Um, And it's something that we in Indianapolis have kind of given a heads up to our medics to ask about for people with chest pain Mm -hmm. in particular, right? Because we don't want to give them nitro. Mm -hmm. Um, But also something to think about as far as things that might be the causative agent of a headache. So meds, 
And, you know, did you have surgery? Has anybody mucked with your brain recently? Because that might give you a headache. So those would be kind of my big um, important history components. Have you had it before? Anybody in your family had headaches like this? What meds are you on? What medical conditions do you have? Has anybody been poking around in your brain? You know, something I wanted to ask you about is the location of the pain. Does that help you get a sense of what's going on in there? The description of it may may make me more likely to think it's benign. So like kind of a posterior occipital type, head, type headache is kind of a classic symptom for a tension headache or a bifrontal headache may be associated with sinuses. You know, migraines and cluster headaches are often unilateral behind the eyeball. For more serious pathology, if you're thinking, if you're worried about like a, a mass or you know, tumor or structural abnormality, they've actually done studies and there does not seem to be any reliable association between the location of the pain and the location of the pathology. So yes, the answer is yes and no. And, and that's kind of the case when it comes to headaches in general, right? Yes and no. It's always yes and no, mm-hmm. or maybe, kind of, sometimes, not always. Yeah. One of the things I said in this thread was, I used to think that I was really bad at neuro, <laughs> but it actually, we're all bad at neuro because bad nobody neuro. knows anything about neuro. Because oh my gosh. <laughs> it's just like a black box in there sometimes. Totally. Yeah. Um, okay, good. Thank you for answering that question about the location and the kind of the quality, the quality. of the pain. Yeah. I mean, it's helps for people you know, people tell you, um, like often pathologic type headaches don't throb. Um, but again, it's every, you got to take everything with a grain of salt, right? Patients don't always read the textbook. Um, and patients aren't always, I hesitate to say good historians because some will make the argument that we don't, there's no such thing as a bad historian, just a bad history taker. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes we don't, we're not speaking the same language and can right. get on the same page. So you still, anything that could be a harbinger of badness, I think you still always have to take everything with a grain of salt and still maintain a really high level of suspicion. So physical exam. Physical Are you exam. ready to move to it? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Again, with the caveat, if my patient doesn't look good, one side of their face hanging lower than the other, one arm don't look like it works, I'm going to skip to my physical exam and do that while we talk. And sometimes I'll do that anyway. I you know, work in big county ERs with lots of patients in them and, and move pretty quick. The first thing actually I'll do with them is my neuro exam because that's the most important thing for me to know off the bat. Do they have neuro deficits? Right? So again, a lot of that you do on your first take, sick or not sick assessment. Right? Do they have what we call gross neurologic deficits, stuff that you can see, everybody can see. And then you kind of go to a more specific assessment, obviously strength, sensation. Do they, are they coordinated? One of my favorite medical words is dysdiatocokinesia. Right, I know. And so it's so you know when we ask people to like when we're doing cerebellar testing and we say can you tap this finger together and then this finger together or put your hands in your lap and flip them back and forth Mm -hmm. as fast as you can that's what we're looking for it's like this lack of cerebellar coordination and you called it dis 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 diadicokinesia I know it's great (laughs) that and borborygmia are like my favorite words right I have a friend in med school who said he was going to start a nerdy band and call it the borborygmia like oh you got it bad Um, so yeah so do we have kind of growth Gross motor function? Do we have gross sensation, right? Um, and is it equal on both sides? Because maybe they can feel you, but they can't really feel you on one. It's light on one side and normal on the other. And I say, you know, does this feel normal to you? Does it feel the same on both sides? Mm-hmm. Um, you want to look at cranial nerves. I have never tested cranial nerve one in the ED, although mine is often tested, right? I'm not worried about if you can smell or not. <laughs> Facial asymmetry, tongue movement. Extraocular movements, right? Do your eyes move in conjunction with each other? Shoulder shrug, all those sorts of things. Listening to the quality of their voice. 
if you do it a lot, you can do it quickly. At first, oh my gosh, I remember medical school and they would give us the like time limits for our exams, right? Yeah. So you have to be out next number of minutes. And I'm like, I'm never going to get all this done, right? Mm-hmm. And now it doesn't take any time at all because it just becomes habit, you know, it becomes rote. We do this exercise with the students. Well, first semester, they learn all of these tools, mechanics of how to do these tests. And then later on in the program, we have them create their own, what we call a two-minute neuro, where it just is a, it's kind of scripted, mm-hmm. um, just as a launching place. It's, it's a screen that they can just default to, they're going to do it, and then as they find deficits, then later they would have to like customize and do a deep Right. One. And I think it changes, right, as you get more experienced. There are certainly things that I don't test anymore that I did when I was in school or when I first started practicing. Um, and there are things that I do test now that I didn't. Mm-hmm. And it's a little more, you know, tailored to my patients and tailored to the complaint. And that just all comes with experience. And it's frustrating because no one can tell you when this do that. Right. But some of it, like I refer to, to Spidey Sense all the time. I had a neurosurgeon mock me one time because I told him I ordered an MRI because my Spidey Sense said I should. <laughs> and he was just really mad because I was right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he should be really glad but, you were right. But yeah, but I mean, sometimes like... You just know you need to do something. You know you need to worry about it. Gestalt. I never let That's the gestalt. Yes, yeah, the gestalt, right? I never let my my spidey sense or my gestalt talk me out of something, but I will often let it talk me into something. Like do something extra. Mm-hmm. I will never skip a step because I'm like, oh, this is probably fine. But if my gut says there's something to worry about, I will often like expand my workup or my differential. I think that's great advice. Yeah, I've never heard it articulated like that, but that's that's good. Never heard someone talk about Spidey Sense before. <laughs> Not in that way. <laughs> Very informal. So kind of um, tacked in with your neuro exam, right, is kind of an inherent mental status exam. And you kind of do your mental status exam while you're taking your history. Can they give you a complete and coherent sentence? Can they recall things in a logical fashion? Are they thinking in a linear fashion or are they tangential? Another thing that you want on a headache exam that is maybe not as common is a skin exam. And I myself gloss over unless there's a reason like, oh, they look fine. They're not pouring sweat. Great. They're not white as a ghost. Great. They're not green. Great. There are a lot of neurologic conditions that are associated with headache that also have skin findings. The first thing and probably the most worrisome immediately would be meningitis. If you've got somebody who's maybe a little altered, they've got a headache, they're, they're you know, maybe complaining of neck pain, do they have the rash? Because the rash is bad. The rash is a fairly late finding, even though we kind of teach it all together. Those patients are really, really sick. Do they have any weird skin markings? So the one that I thought of thinking of first is like cafe au lait spots, um, kind of light brown or slightly darker than their natural skin tone spots. Most people have multiple, usually bigger than a quarter, but not you know covering like a whole limb. Um, and those are associated with neurofibromatosis type 1, a condition that, that often in, involves brain tumors. And so that's like a really useful um, exam finding. And not hopefully we'll find it ourselves too, but dude, if I had a medic come into the ED and be like, hey, I have this lady, this is how old she is, she's presenting with a headache, here's her neuro exam, and by the way, I noticed some cafe au lait spots on her back, I would probably worship that medic for the rest of my <laughs> career, right? Those are the things, yeah. like, at the end of the day, we should all respect each other because we're all colleagues, we're all highly trained, we have very specific roles and very important roles in patient care. But the bottom line is some ER doctors and other doctors and other pr- practitioners in general are jerks. And they write off EMS. Like, that's just a reality. While you shouldn't have to, like, earn a collegial relationship, if you come in and do something that really shows them that you know what you're doing, 
and you really have a handle on patient care and you really have a handle on like clinical decision making and assessment, Mm -hmm. that's going to go a long way. Yeah, and I think we can be masters of the physical exam because we don't have the imaging and the labs. And it's like, well, okay, let's work with what we've got. Let's pour our energy into physical exam and history taking. Man, it's so useful too, especially for a patient who's sick and in some, some extremis. I am sort of expected to jump in and be doing things, right? And for the most part, we will. You have this whole transport that's such a luxury, right? And and I will listen, and unless there's something that has proven to me in the past that maybe I need to redo that assessment, especially at first, I will take that report at its face value. The first 60 seconds, unless a patient needs to be intubated or something I can't do while I listen to you. Like, mm-hmm. I can run a code and listen to you. I can't do an airway and listen to you, like, for whatever reason. My, mm-hmm. my brain just blocks everything else out. With that exception, the first 60 seconds you're in my room belong to you. So give me everything you got. Tell me everything you know. Even if it's only a six or seven minute transport, have the opportunity to learn a lot of things. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's really helpful mm-hmm. for me because, I mean, if you tell me they have a family history of migraines or they have a family, you know, they have a prior history of an aneurysm they had clipped, right? Like, I don't need to re-ask that. Yeah. And you have made my job easier and saved me time. And it also, again, it shows me that you know what you're looking for and you know what to worry about. And so when you come in with a patient that's maybe a little more sick or a little less cut and dried, I feel more comfortable trusting that assessment. And that's not just because, you know, it's an EMT or a medic. That goes for anybody. It goes for my residents. It goes for the nursing staff. It goes for my colleagues. It goes for me to my other colleagues, right? You know, having a a framework for assessing patients, no matter what it's for, really helps you come across as the intelligent professional that you are. You talked about the skin, standard headache patient. I'm not saying what all eye exams can't, could you possibly do. <laughs> I'm saying average day, average patient headache, you know, not an extremist. What all are you going to do with, with the eyes? So extraocular movements always. Ask them about their vi- the quality of their vision. Do they have a visual disturbance? And not just is it blurry or is it double. There are some conditions where they'll lose vision in one eye. Now, most of them will volunteer that, but it's, you know, is your vision normal or is there something different about it today? Tell me about what's different. Are their pupils equal and react appropriately reactive? Are they having photophobia when you check them? Uh, and the other thing I look at is like conjunctival injection, right? Are they red? Because cluster headaches in particular, the eye will be red on the, the associated, the affected side. And so that can be a clue to a very severe and miserable but benign type of headache. Uh, nystagmus, what's that and how do you check? So nystagmus, that's actually a good thing, and I, I, I should have thought to bring that up. Um, nystagmus would be kind of like a repetitive right motion in one direction, usually um, both eyes together. We all have a little bit of nystagmus. You can't, you can't see it on yourself. It's really frustrating, right? Ah. But if you look to the, you know, the very far edge, like all the way to the left, you'll get a little bit of nystagmus. We get a little nystagmus when we're a little intoxicated. Mm-hmm. You can have nystagmus in any direction, but usually people will have like a horizontal, so like a left beating or a right beating nystagmus. Vertical nystagmus, beating up or beating down, is either ketamine intoxication or a, a, a brain mass wow. until proven otherwise. Wow. Um, that's, I'm glad you brought that point up because that's a nasty finding. Okay. So if someone is having neurodeficits and they have a headache. Mm, right. Does it mean something different? Yes. Does that mean something different to you than, than 
neurodeficit patient that doesn't have a headache? Not really, because neurodeficits are never a good thing, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> <laughs> now, the patient with a headache and neurodeficits may not have a stroke because migraines can be associated with neurodeficits. Have you seen that crazy YouTube video of the reporter having a migraine and she looks like she's... No, I haven't. I'm going to show it to you. It's insane. She's just speaking in gibberish and everyone thought she was having a stroke on air and it turned out it was a migraine. Migraines do some nasty things to you. I have a lot of sympathy for people who live with like severe, difficult to treat migraines. Generally, they're not going to give you like foot drop, Mm -hmm. right? They're generally going to be kind of cranial nerve, facial, maybe upper extremity type symptoms, confusion, language. Um, But that doesn't mean that they couldn't. But anytime you have neurodeficits, it's not good. I will be hard-pressed not to put someone with a headache and neurodeficits in the scanner unless they're sitting there telling me, yes, every time I have a migraine, the left side of my face droops. This is something like they're well aware of and is documented. And I think it's still going to scare me. <laughs> I think in the field with a neurodeficit like that, it activates a stroke yes. alert for us. And I think that is 100% fine, right? With stroke alerts, STEMI alerts, but we expect some false activations. Right. And if we're not falsely activating, sort of like appendic- appendixes, right? Surgeons will say like, oh, if you've never taken out a negative appendix, you've not taken out enough appendixes, right? Huh. If you're not getting false activations, you might not be activating enough. You, mm-hmm. Your threshold might not be low enough. And what are you missing? I have no problem when somebody comes in and says, this was a little concerning. Maybe it doesn't quite t- check all the boxes, but I went ahead and activated it anyway. Absolutely. That's what you should do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's fine because if nothing else, it alerts us to a patient that we need to be concerned about. Thanks for commenting on that. I think that kind of practical kind of feedback is really helpful because medics worry. Oh my gosh, poor medics have to worry about everything. (laughs) Well, they worry that they have to be somehow like 100%, you know? Yeah, you worry you have to be perfect. The system allows for some over-triage. It does. The system allows and plans for over-triage. Just like um, the trauma system, both pre-hospital and in-hospital, we actually expect a 25 to 35% over triage rate. That's how you cast uh, cast a big enough net. Yeah. Anybody who gives you crap for activating when it didn't turn out to be the thing is a jerk and they should be sorry. I bet they are. <laughs> I bet they're not. I bet they're not. <laughs> My daughter recently had a headache. Like a bad one. A bad one. She was she was in pain. And she had an associated fever. How do I know as her mom? I couldn't there was I couldn't find any source of infection. Right, we, we took her to the doctor. No UTI, no cough, no runny nose. How do I know it's not meningitis? Kids are scary, huh? Kids are <laughs> scary. This is why I like having dogs. <laughs> <laughs> the be- the best thing to do because headache is very frequently associated with fever, right? Mm-hmm, right. So get the fever down. Yeah. If the headache gets better, it's probably associated with the fever and benign. Mm-hmm. And sometimes kids have fevers for reasons we don't understand, mm-hmm. and that's a whole rabbit hole I'm not going to fall down yeah, today. Yeah, we won't go there. But if you get the fever down mm-hmm. and the headache goes away, then I would not be concerned about it. Yeah. Headaches associated with meningitis, obviously the neck stiffness, right? Meningitis comes on really quickly, which is why it's really scary. It comes on really quickly, actually, mm-hmm. right? But your meningitis patients are going to have a headache. They're going to be febrile. They're going to look ill. Are we talking bacterial or viral here or both? Both, actually. Okay. Um, you know, bacterial obviously is 
is more deadly and requires treatment. But both bacterial and viral meningitis patients look really ill, mm-hmm. you know. And again, they're usually they're dry, they're hot, they have the headache. Um, bacterial is probably more commonly associated with the neck pain and rigidity, although viral absolutely can be as well. And it's not just neck pain. Like they'll be lying on the bed and, and refuse to move. It's a, it's stiffness. Um, if you try and move their head, it'll be excruciatingly painful. It's not like when your neck is tight. Because, you know, when we're sick, we tend to lay in bed and we lay in bed, we get stiff and our neck hurts and all those things. It's a much more sinister type of pain and a much more sinister type of exam. Um, there are some specific exams you can do, like where you try and flex the neck. They'll, patients will flex at the hip as well. Mm-hmm. So you're just pulling like chin to chest kind of yep. thing? Um, but but those patients also, they won't turn their head and look at you. Mm. You know, if it's like I have a headache and my neck hurts, and they're, and they're but they're okay moving around and they'll look at you, that is less concerning. Again, now if it persists and they are sick and it doesn't get better, you know, that's what doctors are for. Yeah. You know, as often as we should not go see them sometimes for things that we should have learned in the process of growing up into adulthood <laughs> that we don't. When you, and, and I always tell my patients that even even when I'm a little frustrated, I'm here to help you not be scared, right? If it's if you have thought about this rationally, you have tried to take care of this and failed, and you are concerned, come see me because that's what I'm there for. But you know, if your kid's vaccinated and not in jail, not sleeping in a dorm, probably okay. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, good point. So there's that too, right? There's All that. The risk factors. And that honestly, that like see if you can fix the fever and see if the headache goes away, that kind of goes for any headache, right? Throw all the stuff you have at home at it. The thing that we fail at at home is not being aggressive enough taking care of headaches. And that I am super aggressive in the ED because if I give you my headache cocktail, which is long <laughs> and involves a lot of things, and your headache doesn't go away, then I am more concerned. Mm-hmm. Do you follow up on your patients? Always obsessively not every single some one. of them right yeah not every single which one. ones um the ones that are really sick the ones that i wasn't quite sure what happened the ones that had something i'd never seen before it was really interesting mm-hmm. um pretty much all my patients that go to the icu i follow for a couple days if not throughout their hospital course how do you follow you just make a phone call up there i, st- I chart stalk them you i think you can look through the i thing. can look in the chart yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a little slow on my documentation sometimes, which isn't great, <laughs> but it means I'm usually in their chart the next day or the day after polishing things off. And then I can look at the notes and, and see what the inpatient teams thought, um, see if things change. And sometimes things are like are drastically different. And then I go back and look at my notes and I'm like, was that a thing? Uh, my hospital also will provide us a notification if they return to the ED within 48 hours. Sometimes it's like a nothing burger. And then sometimes it's, you know, they were acutely psychotic, picked up on the highway. And I'm like, man, did I miss that? So I I like it. It gives me an opportunity to double check my own work. Um, That's how we create patterns, right? That looked like that. And it ended up being that. And it ended up being this. I also like when patients come in, I'll look, when I look at their history, I'll check to see if I've ever seen them before. And if I have, you know, I, I will go look at the encounter and kind of follow it through. If I didn't discharge them, I'll follow it through just to make sure I didn't yeah. didn't miss things. And also, yeah, you learn. I learn things about how other services document. If I document my neuro exam like a neurologist, it's going to be better. So I learn a lot from their documentation. I learn a lot from their medical decision making. You know, sometimes I think that wouldn't have changed what I did. And then sometimes I'm like, oh, yeah, next time I'll do that ahead of time. 
and then we'll already have that piece of data. Why did you pick EMS? Why do you, why do you pick us? <laughs> I think you guys picked me, man. <laughs> um, you, you guys just feel like my people. Mm. You know, it, it makes me very happy to hear Kyle say that I feel like, you know, one of you because, man, I love it. My brother is actually an EMT um, working on the streets down in Mobile, mm-hmm. running 911 in the bayou. I've always found this incredible collegial atmosphere, this, you know, great teamwork, a spirit of independence. Pre-hospital personnel are tough. You can't scare easy. Mm-hmm. It's a group that I really like being around, that I feel a lot of kinship with, and that I respect. For the most part, people are intelligent and intellectually curious and thirsty Mm-hmm. for knowledge, right? And so it just so happened that I went to med school and spent a lot of time stuffing crap in my brain. And if people want to know, like, I want to teach. I love to teach. Mm-hmm. I was a teacher before I went back to med school. Mm-hmm. Um, I taught high school English. Um, and I really enjoy that part of my job. I had always intended to stay in academics so that I would be working with learners. And the fellowship was just not a question for me to be able to do what I want to do in EMS. I, I think it's a really important part of my job that gives me a great deal of satisfaction. I spend a ton of time in residency running with our um, EMS providers. Usually if I had two days off in a row, I would spend one on a truck. That's Grady. That's Grady, yeah. I learned a lot from them. And it also, it helps me, you know, we have better relationships when they bring me patients. It helps me, it helped me back then understand. You know, a lot of people don't understand that it's different. The way, and it's, we should, right? Because the way we do things in the ED is different than the way the internal medicine team is going to do it. I hear that repeated over and over again. It's like, the ED folks should totally understand. We should get this, right? (laughs) And even now in Indianapolis, you know, a a big part of my job is spending time on the streets and spending time on the trucks and in the houses. And I actually prefer, I have a response vehicle and can go out and kind of jump calls and show up on scenes, which is fun, but... I actually prefer like jumping on an ambulance for the day or riding with our district lieutenants, going out to the firehouse and jumping on an engine or a squad truck and riding with them and getting to know them because it also gives us downtime to just chit chat and the things that pop into your brain that maybe aren't going to if you're sitting in the back of a lecture or whatever and just talk about stuff and also, you know, learn what they need to -hmm. do their job better, faster, more efficiently. So do you want to be an EMS medical director? I have actually um, signed a contract to join the faculty at IU um, starting in July. And I will um, be the medical director for a small service, suburban service there, as well as continue assisting with Indianapolis EMS and Indianapolis Fire and some of their special operations team. Yeah. Well, lucky them. Lucky me. What else did you journal about that we didn't cover? Um, what do we have in here? We covered a lot of this. Let's see. I think we did, too. Covered a lot of stuff. You answered everything I was curious about. Good. I'm glad. And I actually didn't know I was that curious about headaches until I started Man, I know, writing right? about it. And then I was like, oh, there's a ton. I, I, I think headache is one of those things, because they are so common, mm-hmm. that we're just kind of like, and, and they often accompany another complaint. Yes. It's, it's kind of like, oh, okay, headache. It's up there. It's not near the heart. Like. Okay, right. we'll get to that in right. a second. We'll get there. I know a lot of people who don't like taking care of headaches because they're frustrating and we don't know. And patients with headaches are miserable and are not always nice to you. And, you know, once I th- figure out that I think this is a benign headache, I said, I'm going to give you your cocktail. I'm going to leave you alone. I'm going to let you be. 
and I'm going to come back and see you when your fluids are done. And then we'll decide what to do. Most people, they just want some relief. It's really satisfying when you can give that to them. Now, like I said, I, I think probably 95% of my patients are at or near baseline after you know some treatment. Those that aren't, that's kind of a scary place. And then we have to talk about some concerning things. But those are patients I also like taking care of, right? As emotionally draining as the bad part of emergency medicine can be, you know, telling the 31-year-old that they have metastatic, likely have metastatic ovarian cancer or someone that their family members just died or all of those sorts of things. You also can turn it around and think about, I have the opportunity to be good to this person on their worst day. And that for me is, is salvaging. And that for me helps prevent a lot of that emotional drain and strain that shifts can bring. Um, if we get to the point where we're looking at something scary and I have taken care of colleagues with mm. bleeds um, and that's a really bad day. But again, it's a, that is a privilege to be the person who is capable and willing of taking care of someone on their worst day. And so either way, you fixed it and you made it better or, you know. You were there for them. You were there for them. Yeah. I know it's like super like mushy, touchy, feely, and that's not my typical like MO. Mm -hmm. But in that particular case, you know, how would I want this to feel if I were on the other side? My favorite people in emergency medicine are exactly that. They're like, no nonsense, right? They're going to cuss like a sailor and, and be crazy. <laughs> I've done really well today, okay? You've done amazing. I, I have not. This is I don't think I've cursed podcast, once. <laughs> I don't think you have either. But I imagine you do on occasion. They're that, but then they're also totally present with the lonely or scared patient. They're, yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's a... People who are sick and in the emergency department are scared. If you need to be in the emergency department, that is a scary day. And it's the same thing for my medics and my EMTs. When they bring in somebody who is not doing well, that is a rough trip for them. And they turn around and may get another one of those right away. Mm -hmm. And then another and another. And that is a tough day. People, I think everybody, I think most like training programs do have an EMS component, whether people, how much people do or how seriously they take it is variable. But I think that everyone should have the experience of being in the back of the truck with a sick patient, because it's one of the scariest places to be or being in the back of the truck with an agitated patient. Mm -hmm. Because I think that often we're not empathetic enough to how that feels to being basically locked in a tin can, a moving one, a moving tin can with either someone who's trying to hurt you or trying to die on you. Or there is a, a patient that I'll never forget from residency and a medic that I'll never forget from residency who just kind of rolled up on a GSW victim on the side of the road. And they just picked him up and threw him in the back of the truck and ran and basically gave report saying, we're going to be there in five minutes and we need you to be ready and I have no information. And the guy, he actually arrested as we put him on our bed. Mm -hmm. And that's just like the scariest thing imaginable to be back there by yourself with no resources and no hands, right? We do this in the ED with 10 people around the bed. So many people sometimes that I have to kick them out of the room. But to be back there by yourself or with two other people, you know, if you, if you knew they were sick and you got some help, that's a, that's a rough ride. Yeah. You could simulate it by just going in the room, close the door, and then pretend like you can't leave. Pretend like you can't leave. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's terrifying. And I have all the tools of the hospital at my disposal. And sick and crashing patients are scary. Yeah. 
Thanks for your time. Anytime. Everything Kyle said about you is true. Ah, Kyle's a mess. I love that kid. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have a sign off. It always just ends awkwardly. We're, We're done. Fabulous. You're good at headaches. I'm good at headaches. I enjoy headaches. Yeah? Headaches make you miserable, right? Yeah. And it's a thing I can fix and make you better. I can't fix everything. That totally makes sense. That would be gratifying. Yeah, it's gratifying. Most ER doctors are fixers. I just hit record here and I have actually no idea exactly how I want to say it, but I know what I want to say. So here goes. I owe you guys a thank you. You probably don't know what this podcast means to me, what this project means to me. And it's probably not important that you know. Just know that it brings me pure joy and I'm thankful that there are people out there in the world who care about the same topics that I care about. So thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with a friend that you think might enjoy it.